Hello and welcome to the Decorum Talking Newspaper for the week ending Saturday the 17th of February 2024. This is Chris and your other readers are Angela, Jeremy and Pam. The editor this week is Mark. All are members of Team One. Most of our news items are taken from the Hemel Hempstead, Berkhampstead and Tring Gazette and Express newspaper. All telephone numbers are on the local code of 01442 unless stated otherwise. This week's headlines. Measles warning. 20 mile per hour rollout cost questioned. 100 cupcakes for a 100th birthday. Hello, this is Angela. Health officials are stressing that it's never too late to be vaccinated against measles. Amid concerns, infections could increase in the county. Last year, in the whole East of England region, there were just seven cases of measles. However, in the last four weeks in Hertfordshire alone, there have already been four confirmed or probable cases of the highly infectious virus. Health chiefs are now urging anyone who have not yet been fully vaccinated with two doses of MMR vaccination to do so. Director of Public Health, Sarah Perman, and Chief Executive of the Hearts and West Essex Integrated Care Board, Dr. Jane Holpin, joined forces to raise awareness of the virus. As well as highlighting the health impacts of the virus, Ms. Perman and Dr. Holpin urged parents to make sure their children were fully vaccinated. And to, to avoid the spread of infection, they stressed that those suspected of having the virus should not turn up at a GP surgery or hospital without contacting them first. We don't yet have many cases locally in Hertfordshire, said Ms. Perman. Our numbers are still luckily very low, but we know that measles is highly infectious and we need to take this opportunity to make sure we are protecting our children and other people who may be particularly vulnerable to the impact of measles from the infection. Measles isn't just a rash, it can be a serious illness. It does sometimes carry long-term risks, including in rare cases, inflammation of the brain and even death. Vaccination against measles is part of the MMR vaccination, which is delivered in two doses. The first offered after a child's first birthday and the second when they turn three. Hello, this is Jeremy. And continuing on from the previous story, across the county, Director of Public Health Sarah Perman suggests that, in essence, 9 out of 10 children, or 90%, are fully vaccinated against measles. But there are pockets across the county in areas of Watford, Borehamwood, Abbots Langley, Kings Langley and Hatfield, where that can drop to just 8 out of 10, or 80%. Ms. Perman said there was still some work to do to get the Hertfordshire population vaccinated to the 95% level recommended for first and second dose. And she warned that it was to be expected that would be rising cases and outbreaks in Hertfordshire. In some areas, GPs are already trying to identify children with no MMR vaccination or incomplete vaccination and all parents are now being asked to check their red book or the NHS app to check their child's immunization history. Where a child is not fully vaccinated, says Ms. Perman, they can catch up by visiting their GP surgery, stressing that the vaccine can be given at any age, it's never too late. The MMR vaccine is not effective for children under one year old, and it was stressed that boosting the uptake of the vaccine amongst older children will protect those who are too young to have it. Nationwide, there are currently about 200 confirmed measles cases, the vast majority of which are children under 10 years old. At the briefing, there were warnings against taking anyone suspected of having measles to a GP surgery or emergency department without contacting them first. Dr. Holpin said, 
if you are worried about a child who is unwell and you think it might be measles, please seek advice before moving them anywhere. Measles is highly contagious, so the worst thing from our point of view is an understandably worried parent or carer bringing a child to a doctor's waiting room or to an emergency department and inadvertently exposing very large numbers of people to measles who might otherwise not have been exposed. Labour councillor Ian Albert has challenged the County Council's record on the rollout of 20 miles per hour zones across Hertfordshire during a scrutiny of budget proposals. For the coming financial year, 2024-25, Hertfordshire County Council has earmarked £2.3 million for the creation of more 20 mile per hour areas as part of a move to improve road safety, create calmer streets and encourage more walking and cycling. That comes after a £3 million investment in 2023-24 and with plans for a further £1.7 million in 2025-26, bringing the proposed three-year investment to £7 million and ultimately it is estimated that there could be more than 50 of the 20 mile per hour areas across the county. But Councillor Albert asked Executive Member for Highways and Transport, Councillor Phil Bibby, how the number of 20 mile per hour zones could be increased within the same budget. Councillor Albert suggested that other authorities rolling out 20 miles per hour schemes appeared to be getting more bang for their buck and he asked whether the county had looked at other councils around the country to see whether schemes could be implemented more cheaply or in a more cost-effective way. Councillor Bibby suggested that schemes in other areas may not be working in the way they would like them. But Councillor Albert said the council did not seem prepared to look at other slightly more innovative approaches to deliver more of the schemes within the budget. During the session, which was held virtually, Councillor Bibby said they were finding that proposed 20 mile per hour areas were not as popular as some people believed. And he said that quite a few of the proposed schemes would not be proceeding, freeing up funds for schemes that were further down the list. He also suggested that there had been some economies of scale through the merging of schemes with lower priority schemes being added to higher priority areas. And he said, we are working very innovatively to put these schemes in place. We are saving money where we can, and we are carrying forward monies that we are not using on aborted schemes. Meanwhile, Councillor Bibby also suggested they were likely to consider a future programme of 20 mile per hour areas that would concentrate on areas around schools and Liberal Democrat councillor Paul de Court suggested that funds from schemes that were not wanted could be diverted to areas around schools. Hertfordshire is home to some of the nation's best recyclers, according to official statistics released at the end of January. Three Rivers District Council, which covers places including Nash Mills and Bedmond, sent 61.5% of the waste it collects at the curbside for reuse, recycling or composting across 2022-23, the second highest recycling rate in England. It is one of the five Hertfordshire boroughs and districts that directed more than half of its household waste into the circular economy. We facilitate waste collections by making it as easy as we can to recycle, but we are grateful for how much our residents support us, said Councillor Sarah Nelms, leader of Three Rivers District Council, which is based in Rickmansworth. The Liberal Democrat councillor added, the credit is to our amazing residents who understand how important recycling is to the environment and economy, and to our hard-working staff who work tirelessly. To set the bar in future and raise it, what we will do is continue our education pieces. We have been working hard recently on wasted food, because wasted food is not just that, wasted, 
It is very expensive for residents if they are buying more than they need. Three Rivers District Council missed out on top spot nationally to South Oxfordshire District Council, which sent 61.6% of its rubbish for reuse, recycling and composting. Vale of Whitehorse District Council, also in Oxfordshire, took third place with a rate of 60.9% and St Albans City and District Council took fourth place with 60.1%. Other top performing authorities in Hertfordshire were North Hearts Council 55.2%, Decorum Borough Council 50.5% and Watford 50.2%. The Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs named Stevenage Borough Council Hertfordshire's worst performer at 37%, with nearby Luton Borough Council the East of England's worst at 24.9%. Three Rivers District Council collected an average 340 kilograms of waste per person in 2022-23 which is about the same as four average-sized British men. A total 20,311 tonnes was taken from the district for recycling, reuse and compost, a figure which includes not only curbside collections but other rounds. But 14,352 tonnes did not go back into the circular economy. Hertfordshire County Council is the area's disposal authority which is responsible for taking rubbish to its final destination where it can be landfilled, burnt, composted or used to make new products. It was the region's best performing disposal authority with 51.2% of the household waste it gets rid of going for reuse, recycling or composting. Conservative councillor Eric Buckmaster said we are all working hard to achieve more for our residents across Hertfordshire Waste Partnership. Transferring food waste to its final destination for composting uses energy, but food production is also quite energy intensive. So it is important to reduce the amount of food which isn't eaten for a number of different reasons. We are hoping that almost none of our waste will go to landfill as part of our new contracts. The vast majority of residual black bag waste will go towards energy recovery instead. Hertfordshire County Council has agreed its budget for the next financial year. The integrated plan approved at full County Council details how the Council will continue to spend more than £1 billion on services that touch the lives of all residents and protect the most vulnerable while tackling expected shortfalls. To maintain, improve and protect services, the County Council is boosting spending by 98 million to 1.1 billion, but due to an estimated 57 million shortfill in funding, the Council will use 11 million of reserves in the next year while commencing with an ambitious programme of efficiencies and service transformation totalling 46 million. To help bridge the funding gap, the County Council will also increase council tax by 4.99%, including 2% to support adult social care in April. The plan includes nearly half a billion to support 30,000 adults to live well for longer, 31 million to support those providing care and increase care worker pay, just over a quarter of a billion pounds on children's services, including 18 million to continue to support children looked after and children with disabilities, plus 7 million in the Making Send Everyone's Business Improvement Programme. And continuing this story, £80 million will be spent on highways and transport, including the continuation of the two-year £7.9 million funding for highways network improvements. 
£19 million of additional capital investment in highways maintenance, £2.7 million capital investment to improve facilities and accessibility at Hertfordshire's fire stations. Councillor Richard Roberts, leader of Harts County Council, said, From keeping Hertfordshire moving to helping residents who need the most support, we'll be spending over a billion pounds delivering services across Hertfordshire over the next 12 months. Setting our budget for the year ahead has been hugely challenging as we've dealt with the impact of rising prices and increased demand. The recent announcement of an extra £10 million from the government is very welcome and we will continue to lobby them for additional funds. The County Council ran a public consultation on the proposed budget during January and nearly 2,000 people gave their view on the plans with the majority saying the council should prioritise supporting children and young people, keeping Hertfordshire moving and caring for adults. Deborah Price, local democracy reporter, writes, Health chiefs are warning that services in Hertfordshire are now under extreme pressure and they are stressing that hospital A&E departments can only treat people with serious, life-threatening or dangerous conditions. A&Es at the Lister and Watford General Hospitals, the ambulance services, GP practices and community health services are all said to be stretched by the number of people calling on them for help. And now Jane Halpin, Chief Executive of the Hertfordshire and West Essex Integrated Care Board, HWEICB, which oversees NHS services locally, says, services are under such extreme pressure that it is vital everyone understands the urgency of the situation. She is warning that those who turn up at A&E with minor conditions could face an extremely long wait or be turned away. And she says those who call for an ambulance unnecessarily could endanger the lives of others. In a hard-hitting statement, she says, the accident and emergency departments of our hospitals only have the capacity to treat people with, who have serious life-threatening or dangerous conditions. Ambulances should only be called in genuine emergencies. If you use emergency services incorrectly, you are risking the lives of others and won't get the best treatment for your illness. If you come to A&E with a minor condition or illness, your care will not be a priority and you will face an extremely long wait. You may be sent away to visit the GP or pharmacist. If you call 999 for an ambulance and you don't need one, you could endanger the life of another person in desperate need of emergency care. Dr Halpin is also urging people not to visit hospitals as a patient or visitor if they are suffering from common winter illnesses such as chest infection, cough and cold, diarrhoea or vomiting. Spreading your minor illness to people who are seriously ill can close hospital wards and won't get you the help you need, she says. Our services are under extreme pressure, which is why it is vital that everyone understands the urgency of the situation and what they can do to ensure that we protect essential health services for when we really need them. Alternatively, the HWEICB is suggesting patients can receive advice from the NHS website, pharmacies or GP practices. They also highlight the 111 service that offers round-the-clock advice for urgent but non-life-threatening situations and say that by calling 111 and selecting option 2, there is a service for those in a mental health crisis. Remote video assessments are helping stroke patients in Hertfordshire access swifter, life-saving treatment. West Hearts Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust WHTH partnered with the region's ambulance service to launch a pilot video assessment program at Watford General Hospital. And since its launch in December, the program has helped 20 stroke patients. The system allows ambulance crews to assess suspected stroke patients by linking with a stroke specialist 
at Watford General via a tablet. The joint assessment ensures patients are taken to the right place first time for treatment, meaning stroke patients can go straight to specialist care in a hospital without the need for an assessment in emergency department. Stroke specialists can also request imaging and tests prior to the patient's arrival to allow earlier treatment and improved patient outcomes. Dr. Tolu Adesina, consultant stroke physician, said, This innovation is helping ensure that patients can be taken directly for urgent scans, increasing the speed in which they receive stroke intervention treatment and reducing handover times from the paramedic staff. We have found this an extremely useful innovation with one patient being scanned within two minutes of arrival. Stroke patients are also receiving hyper-acute stroke care sooner. This is the intensive care a patient receives in a stroke ward for the first 72 hours post-stroke with higher levels of monitoring. Karen Butchard, lead stroke specialist nurse at WHTH and clinical lead for the project added, Following the video assessment, if a stroke is suspected, the patient is met on arrival at the emergency department by the stroke team and taken directly to CT scanning, sometimes being scanned within minutes of arrival. WHTH was the first trust in the region to have adopted a nurse-led approach where skilled stroke specialist nurses triage and facilitate the prompt imaging and further assessments for patients on arrival. The programme, which has already been running in other areas of East of England region, has seen 60% of patients pre-booked into specialist stroke care for a scan or other assessment. An on-demand bus service operating in Decorum has proved to be an instant success with residents. The HeartsLink service launched in December and aims to improve access from rural areas of decorum. It has received a number of positive comments on social media from the ease of booking to its low cost and its use for those with disabilities. To date, over 800 trips have taken place with the most popular pick-up and drop-off point being Berkhamsted High Street. Fridays have seen the highest number of trips. Unlike traditional bus services, Hartslinks doesn't follow a timetable or have any set routes. Instead, passengers can choose from a variety of pick-up and drop-off locations within designated operating zones. Passengers can select where and when they would like to travel by using the Hartslinks app, booking online or by phone. The service is supported, in part, from the £29.7 million bus service improvement plan funding. Hertfordshire County Council Highways representative Phil Bibby said, in just its first month of operation, Hartslinks has proved to be a popular and practical alternative for residents living and travelling in decorum. Providing residents in rural areas with a flexible and frequent bus service that meets their needs is extremely important to allow them to go about their day-to-day -day lives. Visit the Hartslink website interlink.org.uk for more information on the service. A former care home will not be turned into a campus for separated migrant children. Heath House on Elstree Road in Bushy Heath had been earmarked as a possible site for the proposed £1.5 million campus, providing services and accommodation for up to 60 children, all aged 16 to 18. But now it has emerged that the site has been ruled out, and council officers are considering other undisclosed sites across the county. We're committed to providing a safe place to live and opportunities to succeed for the vulnerable children we have a legal duty to support, including separated migrant children, said ex Executive Member for Children's Services, Councillor Fiona Thompson. We will continue to explore potential locations 
for innovative integrated facilities across Hertfordshire to support all children in our care as part of our ambitious residential strategy and will always work closely with local communities as we develop our plans. Currently, separated migrant children are supported in placements across the county that include foster care and semi-independent residential settings. But cost-cutting plans to develop a new campus emerged last month in County Council budget documents amid increasing numbers of separated migrant children being cared for in the county. As well as accommodation, the proposed campus could include classrooms, IT suites, sports facilities and community facilities, with a range of other services on site. And budget documents say that it would bring all the essential elements of their care together into one place, as well as cutting annual costs by £879,000. Heath House, which is owned by the County Council, was confirmed as a potential location for the campus last month, but following a scoping exercise that included stakeholder engagement, site assessment and reflections on the size and scale of the proposed facility, the site has been ruled out. As well as looking for an alternative site for the campus, council officers will now be looking at alternative uses for the Heath House site. Decorum has seen a decrease in life expectancy for boys, new figures show. But girls are expected to live longer than before. On average, life expectancy for those born between 2020 and 2022 was lower than in 2017 to 2019 in England, Northern Ireland and Wales. Experts said that the decrease had been driven by the pandemic, which led to increased mortality in 2020 and 21. Offices for National Statistics, ONS, figures show life expectancy for boys born between 2020 and 22 was 80.4 years, a decrease from 81.7 years in 2017 to 19, before the pandemic. However, life expectancy for girls born in the same period increased to 84.3 years compared to 84.1. Overall life expectancy at birth in the UK was 78.6 years for males and 82.6 years for females, a fall of 79.3 and 83 years. But a fall in life expectancy doesn't mean that a baby born between 2020 and 22 will live a shorter life than one born in earlier periods. A person's average lifespan is determined by changes in mortality rates across their lifetime, meaning that if they improve, life expectancy will go back up. ONS spokesperson Julie Stamborough said, there's also a clear geographical divide. She added, None of the 10 local areas with the highest life expectancy were located in the north of England, Wales or Northern Ireland. By contrast, the, of the 10 local areas with the lowest life expectancy, none were in the south of England. There was a gap of more than a decade between the local areas with the highest and lowest male life expectancy and more than seven years between the top and bottom areas for female life expectancy. Great-grandmother Doris Webberley, a resident at Watermill House Care Home in Hemel Hempstead, was overjoyed at the sight of 100 cupcakes baked to mark her centenary on January 30th. Lifestyle coordinator Sue Case at the nursing home which is located on Rose Lane, organised the cupcakes for Doris to enjoy at a coffee morning with her fellow residents. The celebrations continued in the afternoon, with Doris's family gathering at the home for a party, including her son, two grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. Doris is a lovely lady, said Sue. We are thrilled to be able to contribute to making her special birthday an occasion to remember. Though, Doris insisted that she wouldn't have any photos taken until she had been to the see the hairdresser. 
The 65-bed care home offers nursing, dementia, residential and end-of-life care. Since making Watermill House her home in November last year, Doris has formed a strong friendship with fellow resident Wendy Pottle. Sue continued, Doris and Wendy love to sit and chat and have lunch together. They also take part in activities. Doris has a passion for crown green bowls and, won and has won hundreds of medals and trophies over the years. She still likes to keep active and both her and Wendy enjoy our regular armchair exercises, tabletop games and playing French bulls. Doris was born in Liverpool in 1924 and has four brothers. Their father worked for the railways and he moved the family to Northampton when Doris was eight years old. Thereafter, she moved to East Finchley. Her brothers and families are now spread around the world, including Canada and New Zealand. Doris married her first husband, Arthur, during the Second World War, and they had a son, Alan. Throughout the war, Doris worked at an ammunition factory. Later, Doris worked for BT as a finance officer, where she met her second husband, Stan. The couple were married for 60 years. They were able to celebrate their diamond wedding anniversary together before Stan sadly passed away. Doris recalls their Christmas tradition of going on festive cruise each year and has a photo from one of these cruises in her bedroom at Watermill House. Following her retirement, Doris volunteered at the local cancer research charity shop, only stopping work entirely when she was 96. Claire Cleveland, Doris's granddaughter, added, it isn't every day someone turns a century old. She's a wonderful mum, nan and great nan. We are thrilled to celebrate this special day with her. As a family, we want to say a big thank you to everyone at the care home for making Doris's birthday so special. 17-year-old Dan has praised an apprenticeship route which has kick-started his career. Speaking during National Apprenticeship Week, Dan Bowhill is currently operations apprentice for Everyone Active, which manages Berkhamsted Leisure Centre on behalf of Decorum Borough Council. Dan, who lives in Berkhamsted, started his apprenticeship at the Leisure Centre in October 2023. Dan has always had a keen interest in sport and keeping fit. He swims regularly, uses the on-site gym and plays football matches every Wednesday at the Leisure Centre in a team alongside his dad. Dan says, I've always been eager to work and my school's events made me aware of the post-16 options. While many of my friends opted for the sixth form route, I was drawn to earning money and learning on the job, gaining qualifications along the way. The physical and on-the-job skills are more my style than classroom-based learning. I've already completed my lifeguard training and have taken on additional responsibilities such as health and safety checks, first aid orders, managing cleaning supplies and overseeing cleaning tasks. Dan also supports the creation of content on the Leisure Centre's social media platforms. Looking ahead, Dan is ambitious about gaining additional qualifications, saying, by the end of the year, I'm hoping to complete my swim teacher and gym instructor certifications. Offering advice to fellow 16 and 17 year olds, Dan encouraged them to keep their options open, highlighting the multitude of post 16 routes available. If you prefer more practical learning and less classroom based education, then an apprenticeship could be the perfect fit for you. James Tovey, General Manager at Berkhamsted Leisure Centre said, We're proud to support our local community by providing pathways to employment. Dan is a valued member of our team and his success shows how apprenticeships can make a real difference in shaping a bright and promising future. Apprenticeships in the leisure industry provide invaluable exposure to various aspects of our business and we're committed to supporting Dan in his chosen path. Vehicles were seized and a person arrested following an operation to target criminals on the road in Hertfordshire. 
Operation Scorpion took place in Stirling Way, Boreham Wood, and resulted in one person arrested for drug driving, 13 traffic offences reports, 10 vehicles seized for offences, including no insurance, and three stop and searches. Special Sergeant Alex Whittle, who led the operation for Hertfordshire Constabulary, thanked his colleagues, those from the Metropolitan Police and the local policing team for their support. He added, I hope the results provide reassurance to the people of Hertfordshire and show that we are proactively out there preventing crime and by conducting these operations we're making a positive impact and sending a clear message to criminals that they continue to not be welcome in Hertfordshire. Police and Crime Commissioner David Lloyd has revealed that there were two acid attacks in Hertfordshire last year. Liberal Democrat councillor John Hale had asked about acid attacks amid reports that there had been an increase in the number of them nationwide. But speaking at a meeting of the County Council's Public Health and Community Safety Cabinet panel, Mr Lloyd said they were fortunate not to have seen an upward trend in Hertfordshire. He told councillors that in the last year there had been two actual acid attacks in Hertfordshire with a further three further accounts of alleged possession. He said there were six further recorded uses of pepper spray, which is not a corrosive liquid, but causes temporary pain and so is recorded. Under UK law, pepper spray is classed as a type of firearm. We are fortunate not to have seen an upward trend in recent years, he said. In 2021-22, there were 12 such offences, and in 22-23, there were nine. Conservative councillor Sunny Tusu, who is a surgeon and a member of the National Panel for the Facial Injuries, said that the highest recorded number of acid attacks in England was in 2017 and was in excess of 900. He said that by 2022 that number had come down to around 421, but had gone up in 2023 to 710. He also reported to the panel that more than half of these attacks were reported in the northwest of England, and he reassured councillors it is exceedingly rare. Local charity, DENS, has announced the return of its popular Make-A-Will Month scheme this March. Several solicitor firms across the quorum are generously volunteering their time to write or update a will in return for a donation to DENS, who support people around the borough facing homelessness, poverty and social exclusion. The charity which has helped rebuild lives for the past 20 years, has recently reported a significant increase in local people needing to access their services. DENS, like many other charities, are facing a cost-of-giving crisis, with the triple threat of increased demand, increased costs and lower income. Suggested donation amounts starting at £175 for a single basic will are much lower than the standard rates for will writing. Michael Morgan, a Kings Langley resident who took part in the scheme last year, said, We made the decision to remake our wills and found it very easy. I would thoroughly recommend it to all, whatever age, as it benefits everyone and brings peace of mind. Kate Rogers, individual giving manager at DENS, said, this is a perfect opportunity to make a will, something many adults put off while supporting the vital work of DENS within our community. To find out more and book your appointment with a participating solicitor, please visit www.dens.org.uk forward slash MAWM. Big Zoo is fully aware it's not normal for someone like him to be fronting a major food travelogue show. 
The genre has historically been dominated by a certain type of presenter, but with his latest shoe, Zoo is on a mission to change what I think a travel show should be like for someone like myself. Big Zoo's 12 Dishes in 12 Hours sees the rapper, cook and presenter, real name Zuha Hassan, travel to various cities with celebrity friends sampling 12 dish local dishes in 12 hours. Zoo, 28, brings his signature wit and bubbly personality to proceedings, as well as providing a perspective we don't always see in travelogue shows. He wanted to make it clear that food is not just about what's linked to the history and culture of a place, it's also about the now. I feel like, now more than ever, we're seeing people embrace the fact that different cultures are in their country. What was super sick was in the first episode we went to Bologna and we got to talk about Ethiopian food, and a clip of that went crazy on the internet. People actually went mental. If you watch that clip, you wouldn't even know we're in Italy. You'd just think we're in a random Ethiopian restaurant. But Italy has such a connection to Ethiopia because of colonization. While Zoo is doing things his way, he's still inspired by those who have come before, mentioning shows fronted by the likes of Rick Stein, Jamie Oliver and Gordon Ramsay. Watching how all the greats of British television do it gave me the inspiration to do it myself, he says. But I just felt in terms of representation of people like me, young people from the hood, you don't really see it. So it was sick to be the first person for my generation to do something like that. People might feel like, oh yeah, Big Zoo, he's been doing food stuff for years, so it's normal. But it's actually not normal to be part of a travel show on primetime TV. In 12 Dishes in 12 Hours, Zoo eats his way around cities like Bologna, Nicosia, Amsterdam, and even his hometown London. But he says Cyprus was his favorite. I always knew that Cyprus had good food, and being Lebanese, we have that connection. But I wasn't ready for the amount of good food they had. Everything, the kebabs, the bread, the bakeries, super fresh, super flavorsome. He also pushed himself out of his comfort zone particularly thinking of the pickled herring he sampled in Amsterdam. Bubbly and enthusiastic, you'd think Zoo liked everything he tried, but not quite. We had cake in Bologna, Certezino or something like that. It's like a traditional Christmas cake they have out there. It just wasn't nice. It was very dry, he says, without mincing his words. It was quite butters. Big Zoo's 12 Dishes in 12 Hours is on ITV1, ITVX, on Saturdays at 10pm. For the past six decades, dancing into the small hours on a sticky nightclub dance floor has been a rite of passage for teenagers everywhere. My parents' generation proudly boasts that they invented clubbing, although those of us who did our best partying in the greatest decade of them all, the 90s, will tell anyone who listens that we lived through the golden age of nightclubs. Some of the most enjoyable nights of our lives were spent queuing in all weathers, sometimes for the best part of an hour, before trying to convince a necklace bouncer that we were perfectly fine and would behave ourselves once we got inside. As someone who's hung up his jacket in countless club cloakrooms across the country, I look back fondly on an era when my nights out wouldn't really get properly started until 1am and would end with an overpriced taxi journey home or another queue for a kebab. Although the responsibility of paying bills and raising little humans means my days of regular clubbing are long gone, I have long cast an envious eye at younger folk who have the stamina to go all night on the dance floor. It seems, however, that today's teenagers are going out far less than their forebears used to, a real problem for the nighttime economy. Earlier this month, the largest nightclub operator in the country, Recom UK, shut 17 venues after going into administration, citing rising costs, along with the fact that much of its target audience, Generation Z, doesn't have the disposable income to go out on the tiles on a regular basis. The cost of living crisis really has changed everything for so many of us. But even if they had the money to blow on blue wickets, it isn't a given that today's teens and early 20-somethings would be living at large on a Friday, 
We know that typically they don't drink as much as previous generations and that they would much rather stay at home on their phone than trying to catch a barman's eye before being relieved of 40 pounds for a round. Tring Brewery have donated over £6,000 to an Haddenham-based conservation charity. Tring Brewery have announced the results of their 2023 charity campaigning, raising over £6,000 for Tiggy Winkles Wildlife Hospital. Tiggy Wiggles was founded by Les Stocker in 1983 and is now the busiest wildlife hospital in the world. The charity's round-the-clock care for British wildlife is made possible by regular fundraising drives, along with vital public donations. Tring's campaign for Tiggywinkles started in January 2023 and has seen activities including an exciting online raffle collections at all four of the brewery's membership nights and a sell-out charity beer festival, Toadfest, hosted in May. The result of Hibernation Ale marked the campaign's launch, one of 12 monthly specials that were brewed to champion Tiggywinkles. Beer names and imageries were drawn from the vivid realm of British wildlife, with ales such as Dashing Duck and Opulent Owl enjoyed by discerning drinkers in the home counties. The brewery's annual raffle accounted for close to a third of the charity pot with £1,800 raised in the space of just two months. Food and drink items were donated by nearby artisans Yvette's Chocolates, Chilton Charcuterie and Puddingstone Distillery. Experimental prizes from the Alford Arms Pub, Flithstein, and the Rex Cinema, Berkhamsted, were joined by vouchers from surrounding institutes like the Watford Football Club and Whipsnade Zoo. Tring contributed a veritable cherry on the cake with their own raffle prize donations. Brewery contributions included membership to their Golden Toad Club, a unique beer for a year card, 60 litres of draft ale to be taken in any increment, and a much lauded brew your own beer experience. The winner of Tring's biggest ticket item, Brew Your Own Beer, will work with the brewery to design and produce their very own ale. Once the ale has fermented and matured, the winner will be entitled to take home containers of their brew packaged for drinking with friends and family. Continuing on, Jared Ward, Communications and Marketing, joined Adam, Visitor Centre Manager, as well as Michael and Leah, Visitor Centre Staff, at the Tiggy Winkles Visitor Centre, where a cheque for £6,037.13 pence was presented to the charity on Thursday, February the 1st. Upon presenting the cheque, Jared commented, It has been a pleasure and privilege to champion Tiggy Winkles. We are thrilled helping with their amazing work. The campaign was a fantastic experience, which saw us pioneer new avenues to maximise funds. Toadfest was a highlight at our end, a first-of-its-kind event hosting 350 drinkers for open tap beer, live music and street food, with all profits for charity. We would like to thank Tiggy Winkles for their collaboration and wish them every success in the future. We'll be raising a glass to our local community who have displayed unbridled goodwill time and time again. This accomplishment is truly theirs. Tiggy Winkles ambassador, Louise Brown, said, We were really pleased to be chosen by Tring Brewery as their charity of choice for 2023. They are such a highly regarded local brewery and found such inventive ways to raise funds for us. They even let us name some of their themed ales and hosted some fantastic events throughout the year. It was a pleasure to work with them and the funds raised will make a huge difference to us. Thank you, Tring Brewery, for all your kind support and for aiding us in our mission to save British wildlife. Here's to preserving local wildlife. There's something we can all raise a glass to. 
Funds raised for Tiggy Winkles will be used to provide life-saving care and protection for animals in need. For more information about how you can help Tiggy Winkles Wildlife Hospital, please visit their website at stiggywinkles.org.uk. We now come to the information slot. This is followed by the obituaries, what's on and any more news. How to support a family member through cancer. Many families share the same concerns as the royals. Here is how they can provide support for a loved one. How can you support a loved one who has been diagnosed with cancer? The most important thing is to let them know that they can talk to you. Allow the person to decide on what to accept, for example, lifts to appointments or home-cooked meals. What things should you avoid saying? Focus on listening rather than worrying about what to say. Don't bring up someone else's cancer story. Don't tell someone to be strong and positive as it puts pressure on them to behave in a certain way. Don't tell someone that they are brave, they didn't choose to have cancer and they may be feeling very frightened. What should you say instead? Start conversations by inviting them to give you more information. Let them set the agenda for the discussion. It's about how they are feeling rather than how you expect them to be feeling. Start the conversation very simply by asking, how are you feeling today? What impact can the cancer diagnosis have on the family? Cancer can cause stress and fear and put immense strain on a family. There can be an information overload as you try to understand medical terms along with schedule changes and financial pressures. The emotional, emotional impact can drain you when supporting someone with cancer. What support is available? There are plenty of free support helplines for both the person diagnosed as well as family and friends. Macmillan, Cancer Research and Cancer Support UK to name a few. Did you know that every two minutes someone in the UK is diagnosed with cancer? This week in history. February the 15th, 1942, Singapore surrendered to Japan. A heavy and far-reaching military defeat, said Winston Churchill, of the loss of the fortress. On this day last year, Nicola Sturgeon resigned as Scotland's first minister in a surprise decision that triggered the Scottish National Party's first leadership contest in nearly 20 years. February 16, 1822, Francis Galton, founder of new science called eugenics, was born in Birmingham. Among his ideas was the systematic creation of a superior race of human beings, later tried by Adolf Hitler. On this day last year, the family of Hollywood actor Bruce Willis announced the star had been diagnosed with fr frontotemporal dementia. February 17, 1959, the Queen allowed Marlborough House to be used by the government and, as a result, it became the home of the Commonwealth Secretariat and the Commonwealth Foundation. On February 18, 2005, fox hunting became illegal in England and Wales. The Hunting Act outlawed hunting with dogs. On this day last year, record numbers of households in the UK were depending on food banks, a report by organisers revealed. And February 19, 1942, the Japanese bombed the Australian city of Darwin. What's on in theatre? Austin's Women, Lady Susan, at Old Town Hall, Hemel Hempstead, February 22nd to 25th. Austin's Women are back in a new solo show. Meet Devil May Care Lady Susan, the coquettish black widow, hunting down not one but two fortunes. Oppressed, rebellious daughter, Frederica. 
long-suffering sister-in-law Catherine, family matriarch Mrs. de Courcy, and insouciant best friend Alicia. The darkly comic tale of society and the women trapped within it, based on Jane Austen's first full-length work from 1794, is presented by the venue's award-winning in-house company Dyad, performed by Rebecca Vaughan and directed by Andrew Marjorison. Visit oldtownhall.co.uk or call Hemel Hempstead 228091 to book or for more information. What's on in film? Banff Mountain Film Festival at the Auburn Arena, St Albans, February 24th. Join the world's top adventure filmmakers and explorers as they push themselves to the limits. Visit banff-uk.com forward slash England to book. What's on in music? Night and Spires at the Court Theatre Tring on February 15th. Peter Knight, formerly of Steel Eye Span, and John Spires, co-founder of Bellowhead, had developed into one of the most thrilling exponents of traditional tunes and songs, exploring the space between traditional and classical music. Visit courttheatre.co.uk to book. And comedy, Chris McCausland, Yonks, at Watford Palace Theatre on February the 19th. Star of the Royal Variety Performance, Would I Lie to You? Have I Got News for You? QI and Live at the Apollo, Chris McCausland is back on tour. Visit watfordpalacetheatre.co.uk or call 01923-225671 to book or for more information. And now the obituaries on the family announcement page this week are Adrian Edward King, aged 85, and Eileen Sheila Toll, aged 93. May they rest in peace. Now sport. Rugby League. The new season of Rugby League Super League kicks off on February the 15th with 12 top tier teams competing to be champions. First game of the 2024 season sees a Hull derby between Hull FC, the Arley Birds, and Hull Kingston Rovers, the Robins. And the NK, at the MKM Stadium. Wigan Warriors will launch the defence of their Super League title at Castleford Tigers on Saturday, February the 17th at the Jungle. The season ends with the playoffs commencing in the third week of September with the Grand Final at Old Trafford on October the 12th. Teams in Super Leagues are Hull, Hull Kingston Rovers, Leeds Rhinos, Salford Red Devils, St Helens, London Broncos, Lee Leopards, Huddersfield Giants, Castleford Tigers, Wigan Warriors, Catalan Dragons and the Warrington Wolves. Full Round 1 matches are Round 1, Thursday February the 15th, Hull FC versus Hull Kingston Rovers. Friday the 16th of February, Leeds Rhinos versus Salford Red Devils, St Helens versus London Broncos, Lee Leopards versus Huddersfield Giants. Saturday, February the 17th, Castleford Tigers versus Wigan Warriors, Catalan Dragons versus Warrington Wolves. Wigan Warriors are the defending champions, having won their sixth Super League title in 2023 and their 23rd in all. The new season will be the 29th Super League campaign and the 130th season of Rugby League in Great Britain. Wigan's Harry Smith was the top point scorer last season with 200, six more than Warrington Wolves' Stefan Ratchford. Continuing on, new kids on the Rugby League block are London Broncos, who unexpectedly clinched promotion last season after stunning playoff wins over Featherstone, Rovers and Toulouse. London Broncos owner David Hughes has questioned Rugby League's new grading criteria, which have effectively consigned his club to relegation 
from the Betfred Super League before a ball has been kicked. London seemingly stand no chance of survival in next season's top flight, having ranked 24th in indicative ratings, devised by sports media giant IMG and published in October, which will be used to fully determine the Super League lineup from the 2025 season onwards. Clubs will be ranked on a variety of criteria, including facilities, finance, social media interaction, and geographical location. In part of an open letter to supporters on his club's social media accounts, Hughes wrote, there can be no denying that due to its size and population, London's potential remains as big as it has ever been, yet, Despite being in London and being the only professional club in the south of the country, we were awarded the lowest possible score for our catchment area. This needs to be re-looked at. In football, George Williams scored in the seventh minute of second half stoppage time to earn Hemel Hempstead Town a 1-1 draw at Mainstead United on Saturday. The hosts who recently knocked championship side Ipswich Town out of the FA Cup, took the lead through Sam Bone in the first half. But after a long delay caused by an injury to Hemel's Michael Folivi, who was stretched off as the game entered its dying moments, Williams picked up the ball on the edge of the box and dispatched it into the bottom left corner to ultimately secure a point. Hemel now face Two home games in three days, as Western Supermare visit on Saturday and then third-place Chelmsford City next Tuesday night. Berkhamsted were nine minutes away from beating title chasers Needham Market on Saturday before two goals in a minute won the game 3-2 for the visitors. Berko now go to league leaders Redditch on Saturday. And now the basketball. Hemel Storm continued their fantastic run of form with a convincing 71-93 victory over a struggling Barking Abbey side who sit at the foot of the table. Storm, led by assistant coach Michael Darlow, immediately started the better of the two teams in the first quarter, mustering a 3-10 scoring run and forcing Barking's coach Veer into an early timeout. The teamwork was clearly evident as Storm continued to mount heavy amounts of pressure to ensure that the game was out of sight as early as possible. Storm were comfortably ahead, winning 15-28 at the end of the first period. The second quarter saw Storm once again in the ascendancy, dominating with the physicality of Hakim Silla, combined with the highly athletic duo of Matt Dissou and former barking player Viron Aze. January signings Taylor Johnson and Darian Nelson Henry also chipped away at the scoreboard using their previous BBL experience and intelligence to secure possessions for the away side and score when in possession, aiding a 28-48 half-time lead. The third quarter saw both sides trade baskets before Storm got the pressure back on and a three-pointer from Cavell Hawes put them in the lead by 23 at 46 to 69. The fourth quarter saw a highly competitive period of play with Barking using their endurance and energy to continue to compete with Storm until the final buzzer. Whilst there was a hint of relaxation, Storm did remain focused on cancelling out the 25 points that the home side scored with 24 of their own. Despite not winning the final quarter, it was a comfortable victory as Storm ended the game winning 71-93. to It was a good performance for Storm, who looked confident throughout and deservedly came away with the victory. They dominated the vast majority of statistics, most notably claiming 12 more rebounds than their opposition. Top scorers, Hakim Silla with 24 points, Taylor Johnson 17 points, Veron Aze 16 points. Storm will not be in action next weekend, but return to the Storm Dome on Saturday 24th of February against a tough Bradford Dragons team.
We're coming to the end of this week's news. Sunrise and sunset times for this weekend are 0712 and 1718. For those with access to the internet, our news is uploaded to our website soon after the recording each week on Thursday evening. This can be found by visiting dtnhemel.org.uk. If you wish to listen to Alexa, say, Alexa, open the talking newspaper skill. Alexa will ask you which broadcast you want to listen to. When prompted, reply, play the decorum talking newspaper. This part can be tricky. If Alexa offers the wrong station, just say no and then try again. For those who are listening to this week's news via a memory stick, after the music, there is the amenities section that gives details of various groups and contact details of organisations. Please remove your memory stick carefully from the player and return it to us in the pouch provided. Seal it up firmly, turn the label over and post it back to us using any Royal Mail post box. No stamp is required. Thank you for listening. Until next time, it's goodbye from all your readers, the editor and Joe, your technician for this week. <laughs>